Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Extra Sauce Podcast. It's my fancy sauce. I want some fancy sauce. Yeah. Not done using it. With the czar of sauces, Greg Hill. Greetings and welcome to this week's podcast of Extra Sauce, the program in which we endeavor to present a little extra sauce on topics that we have covered during the week on the Hillman Morning Show. How are you, Mr. Shue? Doing great. Yes. Ready for all the sauce? Well, I'm very excited because we're going to get extra sauce from the directors of a very compelling documentary, which Netflix debuted on Friday, and it's called A Murder in the Park, and the two directors of that documentary will join us. I brought it up on Monday's show, and you ended up, I can't remember if you watched, you watch it Monday or Tuesday? I watched it, yeah, the next day. It's great. Yeah, it's- And it's crazy. It really, it creates a lot of very interesting questions about journalism, about- Capital punishment about the agenda uh, about of some uh, college professors. Yes, a hundred percent about the. Yeah. It's one of the things that we have to have ongoing discussions about in this country about the agenda of those that are shaping young minds mm-hmm. on our uh, on our college campuses and our universities. So we're going to talk to those two directors, and then this may surprise you, but. Mike Shue has booked an attractive older woman for the uh, podcast this week. <laughs> Come on, and, she's um, awesome. Her name is uh, Susan Silver, and she is a writer, a television writer, who has written a true tell-all book about uh, her experience in Hollywood. She wrote the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Yep. She wrote- Bob uh, Newhart. Bob Newhart. Maud. Yeah. <laughs> and, Square Pegs. Uh, yeah. And, but and, she's uh, hung out with some pretty amazing people. That's one way to describe yeah. what, she, yes. what, she, what she was doing. But, but she, <laughs> she says all about um, a lot of legendary Hollywood people, most of whom are men, um, and some of whom, one of whom- is in the news every single day, not for good reasons. So um, <laughs> we'll 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 talk to Susan later. But the Netflix documentary uh, "Murder in the Park" explores the 1992 murder of two people at a swimming pool in Chicago, a a city swimming pool, and and uh, during a, a really warm summer night in, in Chicago, uh, a bunch of uh, teenagers uh, scaled the, the fence at this pool and uh, and went swimming. It was after a um, a neighborhood celebration, annual neighborhood celebration, a parade and, mm-hmm. and things that happened there. And uh, two, two teenagers were killed, shot and killed there. Several witnesses saw it. And a mur- uh, Murder in the Park, the documentary, Goes uh, does a great job of presenting that murder, presenting the witnesses. The police investigated. The police did, according to everybody, a, an amazing job 
of investigating this crime and of bringing the man that did the crime to justice. However, that man is is uh, sentenced to death. He's going to die by lethal injection, and he gets about 40 hours away from that, and there's a stay of ex- execution granted because his IQ, I think, uh, they are alleging is is 51. He's got right. uh, a low a low IQ. Um, and the have you ever done an IQ test? By the way, <laughs> I was. Uh, we should do one on the show every what day. Do you, I bet Danielle. Who would have? Do you think Danielle would end up with the highest IQ on the show? By far. You think so? by I'm, far? I'm confident yeah. in saying that. I, yeah. I think so. She's definitely over a hundred. I. Uh, <laughs> you think you think so? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, but anyway, anyway, they do they do the I they they do this they they basically give him a stay of execution, and during that time the uh, the Innocence Project at Northwestern University gets involved in trying to basically prove that this guy who's on death row is innocent. Now we can debate the death penalty all day and and never come to any kind of conclusion. It's it's I as far as Issues in this country that that people fight about. It's uh, I put it at the very top of the list um, as as far as the country being divided on it. I I, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like the country's about half and half. On yeah, the, on the and there's a lot of variables in that. There's, there are there's there are religion and upbringing. Of course, and, and then 100%. if you're personally involved in some kind of crime, if you yeah. lost somebody, so there's yeah. so many variables. But yeah, yeah. you're right. It'll never yeah. be resolved. So. The Innocence Project at Northwestern University, led by a certain professor that you'll learn about when you watch a murder, a murder in the park, is out to try to prove this man's innocence. The problem is they are willing to essentially do anything to prove mm-hmm. this guy's innocence. It, and, and the lengths at which they go, which is uh, explored in A Murder in the Park... Is outrageous, and 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 this is to me. This is like the big issue to me. We have journalism students who are supposed to be taught to do their job without any bias, and and I right. and I think for you know in the in the uh, in the goal in the glory years of journalism, like the Edward R. Murrow years, those guys and those women took that responsibility really seriously. Like they, it didn't matter if they were a uh, Jack Kennedy fan or a Richard Nixon fan. They did their job the way they were supposed to do their job. They didn't let their own personal bias get in the way of their reporting. That's completely, on both sides, it's completely gone now. Now that, that may not be, may, maybe there's- No, not may, for everybody. Maybe you don't. Maybe you, maybe you don't think that that's a bad thing. You might not think, you might say- it doesn't matter to me. I can identify the bias of a of a of a journalist, and it doesn't matter to me. And 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 that's a discussion for a different time. But the you have these college professors who are allowing their own personal bias. I don't care what the issue is, whether it's the issue of who you're like, who you believe should be the presidential candidate, or how you feel about welfare, or or, or how you feel about. Uh, uh, language, the, the free speech, the things that you, words that are used that someone might find inappropriate, or or what kind of a mascot a, a high school has. Whatever the issue is, there are college professors who are supposed to be teaching journalists who allow their own personal bias to get in the way, and that's not the way 
to create and foster the next set, the next group of quality journalists who are going to present us with news, real news, not fake right, news. Right. So, it, but at the same it. time, the col- college or any school is a place for an exchange of ideas. And if college kids can't step up and ask questions, and I understand some of these professors, the problem is when they have their agenda and a student challenges them on it, yeah. then the student ends up suffering some kind of punishment, which is wrong. Yep. But in a college class, if you don't agree with what your professor is saying, you gotta you gotta speak up, and that's what school's for. Yeah, in my opinion, I, I agree. You know, I don't want to paint a broad stroke that all professors are bad. No, like no, this. no, no. But there are certainly ones like the one we're about to hear about from yes. the, from the two directors of A Murder in the Park who have agendas. This guy had two agendas. So let's say hello to Sean Reck and Brandon Kimber who directed uh, Murder in the Park. It was released on Netflix on Friday, and they join us now for a little extra sauce. Hey, how you doing? Hey. Great work. I I watch a lot of television, and so I'm always amazed when I find something that I I didn't see when it came out, and great work on the documentary. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. We we tried to... uh... We tried to do something a little different than what's out there, and uh, hopefully we achieve that. As uh, as we just discussed, the film explores the murder of two Chicago residents in 1982 and the subsequent death row sentence handed down to Anthony Porter. Uh, Porter had chosen his last meal and was 48 hours away from lethal injection, and, and that's really when things got interesting. Um, how did How did you guys learn uh, about this particular case and uh, what made you decide that uh, it would make a great documentary? Well, we uh, used to run television programs called Crime Stoppers Case Files. We ran them in four markets, uh, Cleveland, Miami, L.A., and Chicago. And the sponsor in Chicago was an attorney uh, named Andrew Hale, who you saw in the movie. And uh, when we were getting out of the TV shows, he said, what do you plan on doing? I said, I want to make uh, documentaries. I want to start with wrongful convictions. And he said, I know of a case that will just blow your mind. He goes, but it's a very hard story to tell, so I don't know if anybody could do it. And uh, we sort of saw that as a challenge and thought, you know, we'll, we'll find a way to tell this story, no matter how many twists and turns there are. And that's what uh, caused us to take it on. Anthony Porter was seen by many witnesses that night um, on the scene committing committing the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, the it, original police investigation seemed to be textbook and, and a great investigation. And Anthony was, uh, as I mentioned, about to be set, about to be executed uh, until. The journalism class at at uh, Northwestern University got involved, right? And uh, you know, it was—I don't know how much I'd say the class. You know, they portrayed it back then as these you know spunky kids who went out and solved the case, uh, resolved the case. But I think it was more the the grown-ups using the kids to make the story no, more novel and uh, getting it some more news coverage. But I think it was more. Uh, Dr. Protest and Investigator Cialino, who who conducted the investigation. But, yeah, they there was a stay of edu- execution because he was uh, uh, deemed to have an IQ of 51, which is debatable. He used to play chess with his guards. Mm. Um, but at any rate, they, they 
decided that his IQ was low and they should take another look at the death penalty. But then uh, protests and Cialino and uh, Northwestern decided they were going to just, just try and just say he didn't even do it. So they, they took a different tack, and, and that's the road they went down. And, and as, they, as they began to investigate, they, I guess generously you could say, they discovered another potential suspect, uh, non, n- not in a generous way. You would say that they created another suspect, but All Story Simon ended up being a man that they were able to get a confession from. And so while Porter is sitting there and has a stay of execution, All Story Simon becomes a suspect in this case. All Story Simon uh, was brought up uh, by one person who was just spitballing uh, back when the crime happened. and uh, you know he, he, you know nobody there. None of the witnesses even knew him, or, or to this day, know who he is, except for seeing him on the news. Um, but they decided to pursue that angle, and uh, then they, they 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 got very lucky when they found Al Story Simon in Milwaukee because they found him intoxicated. They pretended they were police officers, barged in his home, at gunpoint, threw him on his couch told him his goose was cooked, showed him tapes of actors saying he did it, saying, look at all the people who said you did this, and showed him a tape of his ex-wife, and they hated each other at the, at the time, saying that he did it. And he thought, oh, my God, my, my whole world is rocked. He's, he's drunk and on drugs. And they said, good news, we're going to get you out of this. Uh, you're only going to do a couple years, and you're going to get rich. And, and you know, for some reason, you know, in the state of mind he was in, uh, he, he was kind of brainwashed into doing it. And we know now that people people give false confessions all the time. But back in 99, you know, the, the, who's going to – I thought who would admit to a crime who didn't do it. I, you know, <laughs> sounded legit to me. So that's that's what people believed back then. Well, that is, that's one of the more amazing things about the case and about the documentary is that you have journalism students – a journalism professor and a private investigator, and they are essentially eliciting a false confession on, on, on using using pressure, using all kinds of techniques, using actors. Don't forget the at, lawyer. Don't forget the, Rimland. Yes, and yeah. and then and then get you know and then yeah. going out and getting this after they get a confession, going out and getting him a bad attorney. So who who is convincing him that the best thing to do is confess? And these are, this is under the guise of an innocent, uh, an innocence project and a journalism class at Northwestern. Yeah, it's really it, it's it was really egregious and it was just awful. And uh, you know the school eventually, although they're you know they're defending themselves against Al Story Simon's federal lawsuit right now, everything that Simon alleges the school has admitted. Um, in other cases about Dr. Protest. When they, when they finally suspended him and he retired, I think that's what technically happened is that he retired, but when they suspended him, they released a statement saying that he lied to the court, he lied to the school's attorneys, he lied to the state. They said that he caused the university to take on an unwinnable case and unsupportable positions. 
you know, and here they are uh, trying to keep Al Story Simon from getting a dime, saying, oh, uh, you know, we didn't do anything wrong, when they admitted that under their oversight all that happened. That's what's so crazy. Are, are, we, are, are we teaching future journalists that, that questionable, unethical journalism is okay if you are in the pursuit of a cause that you feel strongly about? Well, he seems to be. You know, it, it seemed like anything was okay as a means to get to that end. Wouldn't you agree, Brandon? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're dealing with a, a deadline of Porter's execution. That was what that was the goal, and it kind of clouded their view of you know their ethics. I would say. And their and their and their goal, at least the professors and and I'm assuming the students is is obviously the you know the abolition of the the death penalty and, and they seem to be willing in this particular case to do anything, including using actors and and uh, and and setting another guy up in order to further that uh, that goal. And if you saw the movie, didn't it seem like Paul Cialino was almost proud of it? You know, I don't yeah. have any rules. We're just doing what they do. Yeah. Um, the Supreme Court <laughs> says I can lie, cheat, and steal. Yeah. Get them to say what I need to get them to say. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is mind-blowing. What's mind-blowing to me is that the, the people that work for the state, the attorney general, all, all those people, they didn't see or they couldn't, f- they didn't find the connection between Cialino and and protests in Rimland. I mean, they were in business together and stuff like that. It just seems like a little, I mean, granted back then, maybe the internet wasn't what like it is today, but a little digging, wouldn't that come up and wouldn't that have been a conflict of interest? This was uh, not the first case that uh, Northwestern brought to them. And, uh, you know, they were under a lot of pressure. They were, I compare the, the state attorney's office at the time to like a dog that was hit too much and Every time Northwestern raised their hand, they winced and prepared for the hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that when this tape hit TV, this, this alleged confession, they, they let Porter out without even having the tape in their possession. That's insane. Yeah. That's, that's how afraid they were of what was happening. And, and if you look at what they did, you know, they, they, they called a grand jury and learned all this in the grand jury, and they, they didn't even ask them to return an indictment against Simon because they knew it wouldn't happen. Then they rigged the grand jury by carefully selecting those who would testify and not including the people who needed to testify, and then got their, got their true bill, got their indictment. You know, so they're, they're you know, I mean, they wouldn't have been in this position if Northwestern hadn't fabricated the case. I think that's why Northwestern was sued. Um, but uh, you know they they certainly uh, should have should have uh, had some ability to catch this too. Well, while this is not as uh, uh, severe as a, a murder, uh, but in the conflict of and related to the conflict of interest, uh, you mentioned Andrew Hale earlier. Is he not a co-producer of the movie? Did he not financially back this? Andrew Hale. Andrew Hale did back the film. Uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't on Simon's legal team when he backed the film. Okay. They, but uh, he is they, now, uh, though. He's on Simon's legal team now, though, right? Right. Well, after Simon was released, they invited him onto the legal team because he became a subject matter expert and because they, they took a liking to him, yeah. Okay. That was after uh, Simon was released and after the film was completed. So you essentially have an uh, one of these Innocence projects, which is willing 
to get a guilty man, I think everybody believes that Anthony Porter is guilty of those two murders, get get him off of death row and get an innocent man to take the rap. I'm sure in the back of their mind they believed that Porter was, I mean, oh, well, I, you know, I can't be sure. I, I think that, the, the, you know, they had a big uh, conference coming up at the time, a worldwide conference on the death penalty, and I think they wanted an encore to the Fort Heights Four, which was the case just before this one. I think they wanted one more to put the nail in the coffin, the death penalty in Illinois, which is exactly what this did. Yeah. It took a little while, but it did. Um, and and that and I so I don't know if they really I don't know if they I don't know if they cared who was innocent or guilty. What do you think? I don't think they I I don't think they cared. I, I think you're right. I think they felt like they wanted to outdo the previous case, and mm-hmm. their their mission was to get rid of the death penalty, and it worked, and it worked in Illinois. I disagree. And, uh, in the case of protests, I think he was fame hungry. Oh uh, well, and I think he was going after money, a I, Hollywood <laughs> career. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people get that hunger for fame, and, and I think that was his priority. And if he could pull this off, then, you know, there would be another book and yeah. everything like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, and the funny thing is, and Brandon can tell you about this, they, there was supposed to be a movie about the Ford Heights Ford case, but it fell apart over arguing over money and who was going to play who. What was the story, Brandon? Yeah, um, I believe uh, Disney offered them maybe half a quarter million dollars to to do a film based on Protest's book about the Ford Heights Four, and the students had issues with how they were being portrayed, and so the whole thing, the whole deal kind of fell apart, and, you know, I guess you could say the relationship between those students and Protest kind of fell apart, and and I, I think that this Porter case was just Protest's attempt, again, to have this same situation where you have this dramatic release. I can write a book about it. It can get made into a film or a TV show. So, yeah, I definitely think that played a large role in that. Books and movies were mentioned at every turn. Yeah. Well, profit is not normally the motivation for those who get involved in these innocent projects. Apparently, with this professor, it was. Right. When you guys were speaking with Anthony Porter, who I just, you know, knowing what he he had done and allegedly done, were you, you know, I, I don't think he would have done anything to you guys while filming, but how were you guys feeling talking to him, knowing that he's he's the guy that shot these two people and probably a few others, maybe? Well, yeah, I mean, people made a lot of allegations about Porter, various various body counts. Of course, they're just allegations, but, uh, um, you know, he's, he, he was no, he was no Cub Scout, and... Uh, we were we were a little worried about meeting with him and doing the interview. We thought it was really important to interview him for the film. We knew he wouldn't implicate himself or anything like that, which he didn't. He kind of, you know, just had a mantra that he repeated that he was, you know, that he's been saying for years. I was tortured, and they hit me over the head with the telephone book and everything. But we were worried about that, and what we ended up doing was uh, we had a couple Chicago homicide detectives come in as... Uh, that's security for us, and uh, they actually, we just pretended they were our crew. Huh. So I'm sure it was odd to those folks when our crew couldn't put the lights together. <laughs> we ended up doing it, but we had a couple armed uh, homicide detectives there uh, turning the lights on for us. 
uh, when we when we did that interview, we were uh, Brandon's wife was was quite worried. So you know, it's, it naturally. Where, um, where is the professor today? The professor lives in the Chicago area, and he runs the uh, the Chicago Innocence Center, <laughs> uh, which is you know, there's a there, I think there's a a, a a benefactor who's been been. Uh, uh, you know, supporting them for a long time, and I think that they just kind of moved the whole operation into, you know, away from the school and uh, into its own offices downtown. It was called the Chicago Innocence Project, but uh, when I screened the film for the Innocence Project in New York, they said they were going to stop, they were going to ask him to stop using that name, and sure enough, uh, it, it was renamed the Chicago Innocence Center. So that's what he's doing. He's doing the same type of work. Hey, and maybe some of it's good. I don't know. I just know that in this case it was awful, and they 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 they, they stole the prime of this man's life. The uh, the private investigator uh, Cialino, mm-hmm. uh, where is he today? Uh, you know, he you, you, you'll see him. Uh, you know, he was the one. He helped get Amanda Knox out of Italy. <laughs> Real high profile guy. Dan Rather calls him uh, one of the best private investigators in the United States. <laughs> So that can that can cut both ways. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, but but uh, he he uh, I think he's I think he's still working. I think you know what? As as a private investigator and the way he bragged about that stuff, you know, it's, to me it seems kind of awful. But but if you look at him as a fixer, and as uh, as someone that protest said, look, we got to find somebody else to put this on, and you got to magically create a case. What he did was amazing. It was awful. Yeah. To yeah. Simon, but what he did as a fixer, as someone maybe in a mafia movie, you know, was was kind of amazing that he went out and just created this out of nothing. Well, with so, uh, he has no place in a legit uh, investigation of this type, I don't think. But uh, you know, he he definitely gets his clients the results they order. You can't argue with that. And with regard to Simon, there's a bit of a surprise ending at the end of the film, which I won't reveal right now. But um, he is he is doing okay as well, right? Yep, and he's uh, you know he's trying to he's trying to uh, continue. this story's not over. You know the movie the movie had a bit of an ending, which was nice, but uh, you know this continues. And uh, so so yeah, there's uh, there's still a lot going on. Um, so uh, people can can look into it after they watch the film. Uh, it started streaming on Netflix last Friday, so you can if you're if subscribed to Netflix, you can look up a murder in the park and watch it. And it's, it's a powerful 91 minutes. Get ready to pay attention. I was on it immediately yeah. Friday afternoon on Netflix, yeah. and I couldn't I couldn't stop you talking about it, it on the show. So hey, yeah. a couple days ago, Northwestern University decided to uh, not renew the accreditation of the Medill School of Journalism where Professor Protest uh, used to work. What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I saw a little bit about that, and I, I haven't given it much thought. I, uh, um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it was kind of an unruly program. My, my personal opinion, it was kind of an unruly program, and it's, it's uh, while they benefited quite a bit from the attention it drew, um, I think that now they've, uh, you know, it's it's gotten them in some hot water. This isn't the only problem. I mean, they have some internal stuff uh, that they've dealt with, uh, you know, including, you know, another another case with Dr. Protest and some stuff with some former leadership. Um, so I, I don't know what the reasoning is, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, let's, let's be clear, though. I mean, it's, it's still a, a great institution, you know, 
Attorney Hale sent his daughter there while we were making the movie. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I mean, it's still a great institution and a great school. It's just that, uh, I mean, someone's got to watch when people get power crazy and uh, publicity crazy. Someone, you know, when a grown-up needs to step in and, and turn off the spigot. Well, so, it, it's uh, I, I, I hope Medill's not, uh, you know, dead. I don't know what that means. I know that a lot of uh, famous personalities and, and successful personalities have come through Medill, um, from ESPN to the New York Times. So I, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know what the future holds for them. But uh, I, I don't think I have, you know, an opinion about the, about that non uh, that accreditation issue. Well, it's an amazing story of two murders in Chicago in 1982, a death row sentence, a, uh, a journalism class, and a professor, and an innocent man. And a scumbag who, of a private investigator. <laughs> who ends up being charged for murder. So um, I uh, appreciate the fact that you guys joined us and gave us a little extra sauce on uh, murder in the park. Hey, we really appreciate it, and uh, there are more wrongful conviction and over-sentencing films coming from Transition Studios. Ah, excellent. What uh, You want to give us a tease about the next one? Sure. We've, we worked on a case of an old cellmate of Al Story Simons uh, with Andrew Hale again, a guy named Cleve Heidelberg, who's been in 47 years uh, for the murder of a police officer that he did not commit. Someone else did do the murder and admitted to it, but the... Uh, federal government didn't want to uh, acknowledge it because it was in retaliation for the Chicago killings of Black Panthers. Mm. And uh, it's called Wrong Cat. And uh, actually, that man's conviction was vacated last week mm. due to the efforts of Andrew Hale, uh, who was told about it by Al, Al Story Simon. Amazing. And there's another case in uh, Detroit of a, a young man who was now 50, was locked up as a juvenile for a drug charge named uh, Richard Worshey Jr. His nickname is White Boy Rick. There's a Matthew McConaughey movie being made about him right now. And uh, 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 he was uh, locked up. He's a juvenile lifer. He's still in prison. And it's really more political payback than the crimes he committed. And that's called White Boy. And uh, we had our festival release a couple weeks ago for that. And it won the uh, Free Press, Free Film Festival in Detroit. And uh, uh, it's out being sold right now by Submarine Entertainment. So hopefully that ends up on Netflix sometime soon. Congratulations, guys. Great work, and, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike and Greg. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Every week when we do this podcast, Shu is always suggesting that we have older women as our guests. Okay, whose idea that, was it to talk was, about the villages? Was, not mine. No, that was my. It was based on a news. That was based not on mine. News. That was based. On news. And this based, woman is exceptional. Oh, she is. Yeah, yeah she is. She's uh, has spent most of her life in Hollywood uh, as an extra, mm-hmm. oftentimes wearing a bikini. Yep. And then went on to be. An accomplished television writer. Her name is Susan Silver, and she's written a book which is called Hot Pants in Hollywood. And she tells all in this book, and she's about to tell all now on Extra Sauce. Susan? Hi, guys. It's a delight to have you on, and what a life, what an amazing life you have led. Is it over? No, no, it's, no. Not, no it's not over. <laughs> I mean, I, there is a jinx, a legendary jinx that I'm involved in, but we probably- Uh-oh. We shouldn't mention that. I, I, okay, I, don't. Occasional, like for instance, I was uh, interviewing 
uh, Bob Saget on this podcast a few weeks ago, and we talked uh, almost the whole entire time about uh, Milton Berle, uh, or no, I'm sorry, about Don Rickles, and then and he died, and then he died. Yeah, so I don't know. We should okay. Uh, so uh, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the book. Oh. I, I don't know where to begin. I'm going to start with. Uh, you've led an amazing life. You've 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 met so many amazing people, and I think since we have limited time with you, uh, I just want to get some extra sauce on some of these people that you met, like. For instance, you went uh, you went to school with Jim Morrison. Yeah, how cool is that? I say I'm like the Ms. Zelig of my generation. Yeah. It started in high school, actually. I, I, I know people who are iconic. I have been standing next to them or with them throughout my entire life. Jim Morrison was this little preppy, wonderful guy at UCLA, and he was a poet, and we would sit outside the lunch uh, truck and talk, and he was just nothing like the Doors Jim Morrison. Now, we had a friend a couple named Max and Liz, and they were the bikers and the leather and the long hair. So I think Jim maybe copied Max's persona. Yeah, so he wasn't necessarily like he was in The Doors at that time, and it may have been for a theatrical effect. <laughs> what, what? Well, I think he became that way, and, yeah. and I think we both worshipped Max and Liz. We went on the, rode on the back of their motorcycles. It was terrifying. But, yeah, I think uh, that was the inner Jim coming out. And he was a really sweet, lovely guy. I have a T-shirt now uh, with his face on it. So many, many years later, we're still together in bed. But we weren't then. Let I, me clarify. I, I, you weren't in bed then, and you no. weren't in, and you weren't in bed with Steve McQueen either, even though he asked you out. Yeah, he asked me out a couple times, and it didn't work well at all. So basically, um, I was an extra in the movies when I was in college, and there was a movie called Baby, the Rain Must Fall, and he was the star. And I had a little bikini on, and the director said, you have to go and teach Steve McQueen how to do the twist for later. I said, okay, you know, went into the trailer, and he was playing the guitar, and I had to, like, stand there and twist. He barely looked at me. That was bad. I thought, oh, all right. <laughs> then years later, um, he he came to guest on Laughing, where I was doing the casting, and there's a picture in the book of me standing next to him. I look like the cat that ate the canary because I just sort of edging up to him, hoping he'll ask me out, and he didn't. <laughs> the third time, I was uh, many years later, I was lying at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in another bikini, and I something was flashing in my eye up on top of the hotel. Somebody was looking at me through a telescope, gesturing for me to come up there, and I said, well, come down. Turned out to be Steve McQueen. <laughs> And, and he had a beard on. He was doing that movie, that Strindberg movie. And he asked me out, and I was so excited. And then as we were talking, this guy that I'd been in love with in high school walked by. I said, oh, my gosh, that's a guy I was in love with in high school. And he said, well, why don't you go out with him then instead? And he left. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. well, I, think the, <laughs> so the, I guess we were fated never to be together. I think the interesting thing there is that Steve McQueen was scoping out chicks uh, in their bikinis yeah. with a telescope from at the and Beverly Wilshire. Up. I, I mean, wonder how many went up. I yes. said come down. I think that was very smart of me. Um, I know uh, Elvis uh, Elvis tried to recruit you at uh, at some point, right? I mean, Yeah, Viva it, Las Vegas. I was a showgirl, and there's a picture in the book of me in the back in my little showgirl outfit, and he always had six guys, you know, waiting on him and doing stuff, his crowd. And one of the guys came up and said, Elvis is having a party tonight and he wants you to come. I said, oh, great. You know, I was living at my uncle's in California. My uncle said, you are not going. I said, oh, come on. It's a party. What could happen? Mm. <laughs> so I drove up to the house. I was a little late because I didn't want to be the first one. And the gate opened in Bel Air and there was only one car there, which was Elvis's 
Cadillac. So I said, oh, this is not a party. And I backed mm. up and left. Oh, it was, oh a part- wow. it was a party of one. Right. It was a party of two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wanted it to be a party of two. And then, of course, this discussion cannot end without discussing the fact that uh, Bill Cosby gave you a ride home. Oh, oh Bill Cosby. Yeah, yeah. The, I told that at my book party and got a lot of publicity. I was so afraid they're going to call me into the trial. But um, <laughs> what happened was, it, to make a long story short, which you'll read the longer version in the book, um, I went to a TV show called Hootenanny back in the day, and there was a party afterward, and he gave me a ride, and he said, I've just done my first comedy album. And I said, oh, gosh, I want to write comedy. And he said, well, would you like to work on the second album? I said, yes. And when we got to my house or where I was living, he kind of lunged at me, and I did this Lucille Ball leaves the car thing where I fell out of the car onto the curb with my legs up in the air. And he (laughs) just closed the door and left. So I well, that's I good. Was very lucky, given the alleged behavior yeah. afterward. He hadn't mars- mastered the art of the of the roofie at that point, I guess. I guess that's, not. Yeah, yeah. You, you've written for some amazing shows. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the Bob Newhart show, Maude, and the Mary Tyler Moore show. Now, when you were writing for that show, did you realize that it was as groundbreaking a show as it was at the time? No, you know, it was the beginning of feminism. It was my first job. And so I just thought, oh, wow, this is wonderful. And it's so easy. <laughs> what did I know? I didn't know. It was downhill for the next 20 years after that. No, it was, um, it was a great show, but I just thought it was a well-done, wonderful show. But because it came at the time of feminism, it became this real important show to women, and they both helped each other. And I think uh, only now, even now, today, so many women tell me how important it was to them. And then the reruns, new generations. So, uh, yeah, it was really an amazing experience. I was very, very fortunate. Now, you, you, you were working in Hollywood at a time where feminism uh, was met with a lot of hostility. And I was just wondering, and then you've came up, you've written for some amazing shows like Greg City and Amazing Life, but did you ever use sex to advance your position or to get a job? And by sex, I don't mean sleeping with someone. But... I was going to say, no, I not... have to say, screw you. But <laughs> no, no, but, no. you know, well, he, he um, would, he'd no. give you a promotion <laughs> if yeah. you did, Susan. He would, he would, he would promote you. Yeah. <laughs> no, did I use sex? Uh, no, I think I used um, my personality as a woman. It was kind of... Um, Different, let's say, men. When I, I, I told this story, and it was in the New York Times about uh, gender discrimination. When I worked at Laugh and I did the casting, and I wanted to be a writer so badly, and the boss said to me, No, you can't be a writer. And I said, Why? And he said, Because the men are all writers, and they're in an apartment, and they want to walk around in their underwear and <laughs> fart. <laughs> and I said, Yeah. Yeah, so? <laughs> he said, Well, they're not going to do that in front of you, so you can't be a writer. So when I told that to the New York Times, I said, can you write the word fart in the New York Times? And they said, well, maybe we'll say passing gas. But they wrote fart, so I got the New York Times to say fart. (laughs) Anyway, um, no, it was, uh, as I say, I was very, very lucky because when your credit is Mary Tyler Moore, everybody wanted me after that, and so I didn't face the discrimination. My partner and I had some bad meetings prior to that. Um, We went into a guy's office who shall be nameless, or maybe I name him in the book, I can't remember. And on his wall, he had pictures of naked women's breasts. It was like a whole wall. Burt Reynolds? Was it Burt Reynolds? (laughs) No, it was a producer, Jimmy Comack. Okay. And I I looked at my partner, and she looked at me, and I think we, we started to cry or something. I don't know. Anyway, he said, were you guys secretaries? I said, no, we're the writers. We're here for our meeting. Yeah. God. Well, so that was not fun. I got to tell you, it's a really, really interesting read. You, you've you've led an amazing life, and I thank you for joining us and 
and for giving us a little extra sauce on hot pants in Hollywood. Thank you so much. How will you make it on your own? This world is That's a wrap. Um, that is, uh, <laughs> that's a wrap on extra sauce this week. And for more information on some of what we have talked about, you should be able to find it on my Twitter feed, Greg Hill, W A A F or, uh, Instagram, Greg Hill one Oh seven, or are the, you could check out Danielle's blog at WAAF.com, which gives a, a pretty good synopsis of most of everything that we have talked about over the last week on the Hillman Morning Show. Um, make sure that you subscribe to Extra Sauce on Stitcher or iTunes or Google Play. Our hands are outstretched, and we're asking uh, just uh, out of out of uh, pure desperation that you give us a, a great rating. So rate us, uh, uh, please, please, please rate us. Yes, not on one of the not on one of those body like Best Body websites. Yeah, don't use a body just, index or anything like that. <laughs> just on the podcast, <laughs> and make sure it's a good rating. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for listening to this week's episode of Extra Sauce, and we'll be back next week with yet another episode. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.